And that even in that film, that story, it's very much like what it means to have the joy of the Lord. It doesn't come from outward circumstances or your situation. It comes from God, and it comes from within. Happiness, everybody wants happiness. In the Bible, there's a story about a rich young ruler who came up to Jesus, and he asked him this question, what good thing must I do to have eternal life? He wanted, he wasn't, I don't think he was really interested in eternity as much as he was just being happy, because eternity is really far off. We want what we want now. And happiness is not eternity. And maybe happiness is what we would ask Jesus for. It's not unusual. What is happiness? This thing that everybody wants. Some would say that happiness is equality. You know, kind of like a, a socialism mentality. Everybody's absolutely equal. Well, you know as well as I, that's not going to happen. And even if it did, equality wouldn't bring happiness. Some would say that happiness is prosperity, money, you know, big house, fancy cars, vacation home, all the best things that money can buy, all the good things that money can buy. But we know that money can't buy happiness. Elvis Presley, six weeks before he died, was asked by a reporter, you said when you first started out you want to be rich and famous and happy. Are you happy? And Elvis said, I'm lonely as hell. He wasn't happy at everything. Anything money can buy didn't buy happiness. And it won't buy happiness. Some say that happiness is a good marriage and a satisfactory family life. You know, the whole one day the right girl's gonna come along, or one day my Prince Charming's gonna come my way, and then I will be happy. That that is that's a fairy tale. It is. You know, when they get married and live happily ever after, that's a great ending to a story, but I don't know that that's real life. But I want to tell you this morning, and I am really stoked about this, and that is that God wants you and me to be happy. He wants that for us, and I think that's incredibly important that we get that. But true happiness is not what the world says that happiness is. It's just not. And so today, we're starting a new series I've entitled, Losing My Religion, we're going to study through verse by verse through the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. So I really want to encourage you to make that your Bible study, Bible reading time for the next several weeks. Read it over and over and over and over because Jesus is talking about how we can be happy. The greatest sermon ever preached. At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus, he took his disciples to a mountain retreat and he taught them what following him was really all about. And he said, following me is not about religion. It's about relationship, about relationship with God and our relationship with each other. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And as believers, if we're not careful, uh, we can be involved in religion. We're going to talk more about what that looks like in just a minute. But we can be very involved in religion and be oblivious to it, not even realize where we're going. Religion can dominate your life. It can dominate your prayer life. It can dominate your daily walk with Jesus. Religion cripples your relationship with God. Paul Washer wrote, and I quote, Many people think that Christianity is doing all the righteous things you hate and avoiding all the wicked things that you love in order to go to heaven. And then he said, no. That's a lost man with religion. 
A Christian, he writes, is a person whose heart has been changed and they have new affections. Someone else said religion is a guy in church thinking about fishing and relationship is a guy fishing thinking about God. There's a difference. Religion teaches that you have to do. Relationship, Christianity teaches that you can't do. That you have to trust in the one who has done it for you. Every other religion in the world teaches a works-based Christianity or salvation. Christianity is the one and only religion where you're justified by grace through faith in Christ alone. Amen. That's big stuff. Religion keeps you in chains where Christ sets you free. Religion is a series of man-made procedures that satisfies the heart into thinking that growth is taking place when it's really not. It can fool you. A relationship with Jesus encourages us to grow, to know more about him, and to become more like him. Big difference. In the New Testament, Saul of Tarsus, who would later become Paul, the preacher, was very religious. He even said of himself, I'm a, a Pharisee of Pharisee. Uh, he was a staunch Jew. He was learned in the law. Paul says of himself, as for legalistic righteousness, I'm faultless. He was very religious. And on his way to Damascus to persecute Christians in Damascus, a blinding light drove him to his knees and the voice of Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul said, who are you, Lord? And Jesus said, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. That day, Saul of Tarsus lost his religion, and he embarked upon a relationship with Jesus, and he was never the same. How about you? How about you? This series that we're getting into this morning is about us losing our religion and embracing our relationship with Jesus Christ, and in doing so, We'll never be the same again, ever. True happiness comes not from religion, but from relationship. So with all that said, it brings to mind a question. And the question is this. Is happiness or is joy something that we can choose or not? Is cheerfulness something we can opt for or not? By looking at some of the expressions I see this morning, I would say maybe not. Look to your neighbor and just do a big, long frown and say, I am happy. We often say things like, I'm in a bad mood today, as if being in a bad mood is like a jail cell and the key's gone, you know? Or we say often, I'm having a bad day like we're having a baby. I mean, is it a choice or is it not? Is joy a choice or is it not? Is, is true happiness really a s situation determined by our circumstances? You know, when everything's good, it comes only when those days are problem-free and no long lines and no grumpy moms and no grumpy dads and no snotty-nosed kids or bills in the mail. Or could joy be a choice, a decision that we all have control over? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus starts out the Sermon on the Mount talking about the Beatitudes. Beatitudes. And he uses a word about nine or ten times, and the word is blessed. And the word in the Greek is makarios, which means extremely happy, extremely fortunate, supremely happy. In the Beatitudes that we're going to look at today and next week, Jesus offers specific guidelines to you and to me about how we can have full joy or true happiness. Makarios, it communicates the idea of contentment wherever you are in life, fulfillment and satisfaction and completion. And I want to suggest to you this morning that blessedness, happiness, joy is God's decision for his people. 
and that's huge. Regardless of your circumstance, regardless of your situation, every one of us, you and me, we are one decision away from joy. And the decision is yours, not someone else. You can choose lifelessness. You could choose boredom. You could choose discouragement and unhappiness. And if your life is like that, I want to suggest to you this morning that it's because you've chosen it. It's a choice. But if that's not the way you want to live, you can choose to have this godly joy that's totally independent of your situation, totally independent of your circumstances. It's permanent. That being said, I'm not saying that it's all made up of sweetness and giggles because it's not. Joy is that solid thing that goes deep down in your soul that will carry you through the emergency rooms. It will carry you through the tragedies and the personal mishaps in life, and it will allow you to walk away, not necessarily unwounded or unscarred, but necessarily victorious. It's that inner peace that comes from knowing that God is in control of your life no matter what. So the rest of this morning, we're going to look at the first four Beatitudes. Next week, we'll look at the next four. Remember to read these this week. If I, if I could sum up the whole of the Beatitudes, I would say, get over yourself and get into Jesus. That's what makes you happy. Get over yourself and get into Jesus. Look at Matthew 5, verse 1. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, blessed, happy, Makarios. And the first one in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. True happiness and satisfaction and contentment is experienced. He's not talking about being poor materially. It's experienced by realizing that I need God. That's when you're blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit means I come to a place where I realize that God is my life. And I need him. That's the beginning of your happiness when you get there. And that's so important. That's the first step. You, you have nothing of value to offer God. You can't be religious enough. You can't be good enough. You can't be, do all the good works in, in order to make yourself right with God, like Martin Luther, trying to make himself right with God. We are made right with God when we invite God into our life because we realize that we need God. Do you think you need God Good. That's the beginning of happiness. Remember the story in the New Testament of the, the parable of the Pharisee and the, and the tax collector who went into the temple to pray? And the Pharisee was boasting of his spiritual richness. He's like, I tithe and I fast and I keep the law. I'm good. I'm much better than this lowly tax collector. And the tax collector just humbly prayed, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. And the Bible says that the tax collector is the one who went away justified. Not the Pharisee. The man who recognizes and confesses his need, her need for God, is the happy man, a happy woman. Not the religious person who takes credit for being right with God because of what he is, she has done. And there's a big difference. As long as we're proud of our goodness, as long as we're self-sufficient, we won't experience abundant life. We will not experience contentment and satisfied, happy life that God wants us to live. Only when we see ourselves as spiritually bankrupt in totally need of God. You remember in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah the prophet is in the temple and he has this vision of God. 
high and lofted up, and the angels are flying back and forth, and they're all crying out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And Isaiah said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am, I, I'm a man of unclean lips. I live amongst the people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen God. And his immediate reaction was, I'm ruined. I need God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. That's so very important. Remember the old, the old hymn? It said, nothing in my hands I bring. What? But simply to the cross I cling. That's the poor in spirit. Look at verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Now, this is not talking about mourning the loss of a loved one, even though when that happens, there's often comfort. There's often not. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's talking about mourning over our sinfulness. Blessed are those who mourn over their sinfulness. It's not enough to just be aware of your spiritual poverty you know, you can't just say flippantly say, well, I'm a big-time sinner, and if there's no remorse, then you won't experience the real blessing of peace and satisfaction, contentment, and happiness. Over and over in Scripture, we are told to repent of our sin, to recognize how much our sin offends God. In James chapter 4, verse 8, come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinner, and purify your heart, you double-minded. Look at this. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. He will lift you up. Remember when Simon Peter denied Jesus in the temple courtyard, denied him three different times. The Bible says that Peter went out and wept bitter tears of remorse. Let me ask you, when's the last time you went into your room and sobbed over your sinfulness. When's the last time you punched your pillow because of your sin? You wept and cried and maybe even went into a state of depression because of your sinfulness. The Bible says in Isaiah 57, verse 15, God says, I live with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Jesus promised that those who mourn will be comforted. In the Old Testament, King David learned that. After he confessed his adultery with Bathsheba, uh, he experienced God's forgiveness and God's comfort. Look at Psalms 32, verse 1. Blessed, there's that word is he whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and whose spirit is no deceit. God forgives your sin, but you must recognize you're a sinner first. And that brings joy. That brings joy. Look at verse 5. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now do not confuse meekness with weakness. They are not the same thing. A meek person is not someone that, that never stands up to anyone. A meek person is not someone who allows others to just walk all over them. That is not what it means to be meek. It's not cowardness. The Bible's word meekness actually means strength under control. That's what it means. And Jesus, our Lord, often referred to himself as meek. 
as humble and gentle in spirit. You look at the life of Jesus. Was he weak? I think not. And you think not. You see him before Pontius Pilate when they're smacking him and spits running down off his face and they're mocking his character. And he didn't even utter a word in his defense. That's not weakness. That's meek. And you need to understand that. Look at Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed like sweats of blood because of the pressure of going to the cross. Lord, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to go to the cross. But then he says, not my will be done, but your will be done. Friends, that's not weakness. That's meek. That's meekness. That's what that is. See him in the temple with the, with the cord and straps driving the money changers out of the temple. That's not weakness. That's meekness. See him on the cross breathing out his last words. It is finished. That's not weakness. That's meekness. And meekness is born of strength. Meekness are those who humble themselves before the Lord. And it's not determined. Meekness is not determined uh, by personal desires or anything like that. It's determined by the word of God. A meek person isn't driven by political correctness, but by the word of God. And the attitude of the meek is not decided by circumstances, but by the word of God. Listen to what E. Stanley Jones describes meek, how he describes meek. He says, and I quote, People who cannot be tempted or bought since they do not serve themselves, they enjoy the serenity of humility their peace comes from the absence of selfish ambition. They have no desire to pr promote themselves above others. They do not have to be the start of the show. They do not have to be the head of the line. They do not indulge in a society shoving to get ahead because they trust in the Heavenly Father to watch over them. Blessed are the meek. Happy are the meek. It's that serenity and that inner strength and that surrender and that submission to God. Look at verse 6. This is the last one we're going to look at today. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Let me ask you a very serious question, and you answer in your heart. What are you hungry for? What do you thirst for? Not what should you, but what do you hunger for? If I could read your mind... What thoughts would dominate your fantasies? If I could look at your calendar or your checkbook, what would that reveal about what you hunger for and what you thirst for? Are you hungry for wealth? Are you hungry for popularity? Are you hungry for pleasure or golf or fishing or shopping? What is it that you're passionate about? Jesus said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, who want God in your life, who want to be like God. One of the things I've learned over life, I've learned a few things, probably not as much as I should, but there are some tastes that are acquired over time. I remember when I was little, I'm still little, but I remember when I was young, I hated sweet potatoes. I know. I love them now. And I even love them without butter and cinnamon and sugar and all that stuff. I love them. I've, I've acquired a taste for sweet potatoes. When I was a child, I used to hate black and white movies. Of course, we only had black and white TV. 
when I love color. But now I prefer black and white movies. You know, some things, some taste you acquire over time. When I was young, I really honestly, I hate to admit this to you, but I was not at all interested in reading the Bible. But now I love reading the Bible. It is food for my soul. And it's food for your soul. When you are a spiritual child, you don't have an appetite for healthy spiritual food. You want junk food. You want to pig out on a, a emotion and attention and excitement. That's the way you are when you're young in, in the faith. But when you mature spiritually, you begin to hunger and thirst to worship God, to spend time with God, with Christian people, to serve in his church. First Peter 2, verse 2 says, Crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. Isn't that great? Now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. There are many people in our church who are very active in our life groups. I love our life groups. And what they are, for those of you who don't know, they're, they're little small groups that meet in different homes at different times of the week where people get together and they fellowship with each other. They read the Bible, they study, they pray, they laugh, they cry together. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. About an hour and a half, two hours a week. And other people will look at them and they will say, why do you do that? Why do you sacrifice, you know, one and a half or two hours of your week to study the Bible when you've already been to church. Why would you do that? And they ask that question. But those same people, those same people will battle traffic and sacrifice three or four hours to go see a ball game, to go to a sale. It's all a matter of what you're hungry for. Psalm 42, verse 1. As the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts. For God, for the living God, when can I go and meet God? The Christian is hungry and thirsty to be close to God. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. That is not true of the things of the world. The food of the world never satisfies. Proverbs 13, 25 says, The righteous eat to their heart's content, but the stomach of the wicked goes hungry. Now, just a real quick warning, and then I'm going to close. Don't kill your spiritual appetite. Don't kill your spiritual appetite, and sinful pleasures will do that. They will kill it, and you won't have it. Instead, nurture your spiritual appetite. And you, know what, you know how you nurture your spiritual appetite? It's disciplines that you are already very familiar with. Read your Bible. Read it every single day. Get into a life group. If you're not in one, get in one. Get in a Sunday school class. Be sure you're here. Be sure your kids are here. That's a spiritual discipline. Pray without ceasing. Grow to be a contributor to the church more than a consumer at the church. Nurture your spiritual appetite. Be a faithful steward of your money. Help other people to know the Lord. You nurture your spiritual appetite, and it all begins with what Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, that poverty in spirit that ends up saying, Lord, I will do what you want me to do. I will go where you want me to go no matter what.
If you want to be happy, process of growth in God is, is what's going to make you happy. And that's what we're studying for the next several weeks. So please tune in. Please read Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Please be here every Sunday. Bring your friends, bring your family, bring your kids, and let's grow through the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray. Father, thank you that our joy and our happiness and our satisfaction contentment does not come from the temporary things of this world, but that the joy we have in you is, is eternal and it's deep and the world just doesn't always understand it because it's not dependent on our jobs or our, our circumstances, our families, whether the stock market is up or down. It's dependent on our relationship with you. And so, Lord, today it's my prayer for this group of people, for this church, that we would lose our religion and gain and grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ. Help us to choose Jesus, to get over ourselves and to get into Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's people said, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.